Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. We see Jesus stepping into uh, that role of, of taking back that which is rightfully his, of, of you know, ex- executing God's rescue plan for our world. And, and, you know, when we read in Ezekiel in our scripture reading, um, where he opens this, or he, he sees this scroll open before him, um, he saw that scroll which contained God's rescue plan, uh, the plan to rescue our world from evil. And, and, you know, we saw at the end that it contained lamentation, mourning, and woe. It, it contained a lot of sad things. That's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 calls the seal judgments of Revelation 6, he calls them the beginning of sorrows. Humanity's troubles have only begun because they remain, they persist in their rebellion against the Lord. In the book of Isaiah, you see a phrase constantly referring to the end times where it says, in all these things, his hand is stretched out still. God is still stretching out his hand, even in judgment, but they won't take it. They slap it away and say, no, we we want a world without you. And so while there will be many who repent and turn to the Lord during the great tribulation, this awful time, there will be just as many who harden their hearts and persist in their rebellion against the Lord. And sadly, part of that rebellion against the Lord will result in them persecuting the ones who are repenting. And so that brings us to seal number five, where we see the souls of those who've been slain during the great tribulation. Verse 9 of chapter 6, it says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. The fifth seal is different from the first four seals. When each of those seals were opened by Jesus, a horse came forth, and and then it was sent into the world uh, to execute part of God's plan. Part of that was allowing Satan to do his plan. And Now we come to the fifth seal, and it's unique. We don't see a horse, but rather John sees under the altar the souls of those that were slain. Now, nothing slain was ever brought near the altar of incense when we look at the tabernacle, which is a replica of the throne room of God. And so when you walk into the tabernacle, you've got the the curtains that have angels, cherubim sewn into them, and and giving you the idea. We have the mercy seat, God's throne in the Holy of Holies, a curtain in front of that, the altar of incense there symbolizing our prayers going up before the Lord. So the altar there, no offering was ever brought to that altar. However, there was an altar outside the tabernacle proper, the holy place, the brass altar of sacrifice. And that's the altar that is in mind here. Now, in Revelation 4, when John is kind of giving us the, 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 the lay of the land in the throne room, he mentions quite a few things. He doesn't mention an altar. However, in Isaiah 6, 6, when Isaiah has his vision of the throne room of God, he does mention an altar. And so, this altar here, the altar of sacrifice, this is where Jesus would present his blood in heaven, uh, the, it, you know, not in, you know, the, the, the uh, symbol of, you know, the offering of, of Christ, the, all the Old Testament sacrifices, which were just looking forward. He brought the actual sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice into the throne room of heaven and offered his blood there on the altar. We see here under the altar, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. Now, when the high priest would bring an offering to the brass altar, he would pour the blood out of the sacrifice under the altar. That's where these saints are. 
So I think that's very interesting because while we're going to see in a moment, the world views these individuals who they killed as the problem. They view them as the source of their problems. The Lord sees them as a pleasing sacrifice. Their lives are pleasing to Him. You know, the Bible says that when a burnt offering would be made to the Lord on the altar of sacrifice, it was a sweet-smelling savor to Him. And so that's what their lives were to Him. Now, most of us are not going to experience martyrdom. Uh, most of us are only called to be living sacrifices. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, you know, which is your reasonable, your logical. It's the right response to all the mercy God's shown to us is to surrender our lives to Him. So while most of us are only called to be living sacrifices, being a pleasing sacrifice comes from the same thing a commitment to the Word of God and our testimony. It says they were slain for the Word of God and for the testimony which they held. These believers, these tribulation saints, they were not killed for being political, social, or cultural rebels. They were killed because they believed and lived out the Scriptures. They believed and they lived out the Word of God. And I would ask you this morning, you know, does that describe your life? Do you believe and live out the Word of God? Because there are a lot of things passing as Christianity right now that have nothing to do with Scripture and, and have nothing to do with living out the Scriptures. So do you believe and do you live out, or are you living out the Word of God? Next it mentions they were also slain for the testimony which they held. The word testimony here means the content of a witness's firsthand experience. The phrase held means to be producing something. So they were producing by their firsthand experience something that was on display for everyone to see. Now, John, the writer of Revelation, in chapter 1, verse 9 of Revelation, says he was persecuted for the same two reasons. He says, and I, John, who am, all, am your brother and companion in tribulation and in, king, in the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ, I was in the Isle of Called Patmos not because I was taking a vacation. I was there because I was being persecuted just like you. And he explains why. For the word of God, and then he says, and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He has that little bit added in there. So their testimony was the testimony of Jesus Christ. His testimony was that he told people how Jesus had impacted his life. He was giving a firsthand eyewitness uh, experience. He was sharing his firsthand experience of what Jesus had done in his life. Now, you and I may not have seen the risen Lord, right? We have not, we don't, we're not eyewitnesses like John was, but we do have first-hand experience of what he can do, right? One of my favorite stories in the Bible, because it, it just so, it juxtaposes two things. You know, you've got the religious leaders, and they're, they're, they're all high and mighty and everything, and they know everything, and they always tell you they know everything. And then you've got this man who was born blind that Jesus heals, right? And they're just grilling them day after day. They keep bringing them in for testimony. Tell us exactly what Jesus did. And they're doing this because they're trying to find some loophole, some way that Jesus did something, you know, on a day he shouldn't do it or in a way he shouldn't have done it, breaking one of their traditions so they can say, ha, Jesus did bad, even though a wonderful thing just happened with this guy. And so finally, he kind of just is like, you know, why are you guys hitting me up with all these questions? Do you want to become his disciples too? I love it because you got this guy who doesn't know anything and these guys who know, think they know everything and he's just like, you know, why do you keep grilling me? Is it because you guys want to follow him too? No, no we, we know he's got you. You were altogether born in sins, you know? Ooh, 
What do you mean you're altogether born in sins? Well, you were born blind. Nice sensitivity there, guys. You can't teach us stuff. Tell him, give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner, Jesus. And the blind man says it so wonderfully. I don't know whether he's good or bad. All I know is this. I was blind and now I can see. And all of us have that testimony, right? All of us have that testimony. may not have seen the risen Lord, but there was a time when you were blind and now you can see, right? You know? You have firsthand experience in your relationship with Christ. He's done things in your life. And so the question is, you know, is that your testimony, you know? Do you share with others about who Jesus is and what he's done in your life? What kind of testimony are you producing? There are a lot of things we can have testimonies for, right? There's a lot of things you can invest your life in. There's a lot of things that you can talk about and be excited about. What kind of testimony are you producing? Is it the testimony of Jesus Christ? These guys were, they did both these things. They were living out the word of God. They were, their lives were a testimony. It was producing this testimony of Jesus and they were violently killed for it. So the question, of course, is who did this to them? In verse 10, we see them crying out there under the altar. They cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? The phrase, how long, it does imply a complaint. Um, you know, it is a complaint to God, but it's the right kind of complaint. Because they follow how long, O Lord, before they get into how long are you going to wait till you judge those who unjustly murdered us, but they intersect this little part there, holy and true. Holy and true. Holy means the pure one, the one who doesn't make any mistakes, the one who never fails, the one who doesn't sin. True means the genuine one, the sincere one. In other words, they're saying, how long, God, don't hear us wrong. We know you don't sin. We know you don't make any mistakes. We know you don't fail. We know you do all things well. But how long, oh Lord, until you keep your promise? We know you mean what you say. You know you keep your promises. Please help us to understand that in the midst of this great injustice. And that is the way to pour out your heart to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with going, Lord, it seems like it's so wrong. It seems like there's not, it's not right. It's not just. But you need to follow that with, but I know you don't make mistakes. I know you don't ever fail. So help me to understand. The problem isn't you, it's me. Help me to understand how you're working all things out, you know, in the way you said you would. Help me to understand better. And that's what they're saying. Lord, how long, how long until you judge do not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth. Now, this identifies who did this to them. Um, it, the phrase, them that dwell on the earth, is actually a very common phrase we're going to see through the book of Revelation. It means the earth dwellers. And this is a phrase that Revelation uses to describe those who persist in their rebellion towards God. It, it is those who want a world without Jesus. So this is a group that, this is the group that is seeing these judgments coming, and they're going, we don't need your help, God. We don't need your intervention. We don't want you around. We don't want your love. We don't want your plan. We don't want your rules. We don't want your ways. We've got this. We can do this just fine on our own. We, we will put our heads together and we will solve all these problems. Go away. Bug off. 
That is the earth dwellers. That is a phrase that we will see all throughout the book of Revelation. It describes those that will have that mentality. And, you know, to which I would ask, how's that working out for us right now? Our world increasingly is becoming more hostile towards the Lord. They are re- we are rejecting his ways. There, there, are, you know, there are frequent things you'll hear. Uh, you know, the late Christopher Hitchens, who was a, an atheist, basically said, if, if I ever saw the Lord, I'd tell him to bleep off. And these are things that you're hearing repeated by individuals these days who would say, they actually would say, I'm, I'm more righteous than God. The God of the Bible does things that are wrong, and I would never do those things. So this is holding us back. These ideas, these concepts, these ways are holding us back from from peace on earth. It's holding us back from, from reaching our full potential. And it's only a short leap to take from that mentality to the next step, which says, you guys who won't let go of this are the ones standing in the way. And what will happen in the great tribulation, the Bible says today that God is holding that back. And he's not letting that happen yet. But in the great tribulation, when the enemy is allowed to bring his plan to fruition, the Bible tells us that that is the mentality that will be developed, that they will blame those who are following Christ as the ones who are keeping us from achieving our utopia. And if you won't get out of the way, then we will take you out of the way. And so the blame for all of these first four seals is going to come upon those who are during this time repenting and turning to Jesus and, and saying, you're the only answer, and they'll be killed for it. This isn't just a specific group like the Antichrist and his cronies that are going to do this. This will be a global mindset of violent opposition to those who follow Jesus. Now, how does God respond to their cry for justice? Verse 11. It says, and white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were, these are the things they have in common, this group, with those who will come, until that should be fulfilled, until that, that number is reached. Now, a couple of things here help us to identify who this group of people are. These are not saints from all time. This is not Abel all the way down to the last believer who is killed, all right? First off, unclothed souls. They don't have clothes. They're given white robes here. It means they've just arrived in heaven. They're new arrivals. They've all arrived at the same time. So this is a massive persecution of believers after the events of seals 1 through 4, of verses 1 through 8 of Revelation 6. Everyone's going to blame the followers of Jesus for what happened, and they will, there will be a massive persecution. Many believers will be violently killed. Now, a couple things to note. When it says they're clothed in white robes, you say, but isn't that us? The Bible promises us we'll be clothed in white robes. Jesus never promises that Christians will wear white, this word here, white, the word for robes here. He always uses a different word for the white clothing we get as Christians. So the question then is, who are these believers? Look at Revelation chapter 7 with me, verses 13 through 17. As more and more of these believers are killed, we see this great multitude of them in Revelation 7, verse 9. And when we get to, we'll get to that later, so I don't want to go into too much detail there. I just want to read this to you. In verse 13 of chapter 7, one of the elders answered to this response of seeing these people worship the Lord in heaven, answered, saying unto me, what are these that are arrayed in white robes? And where, where did they come from? And I love John's answer. He's like, you've been here longer than me. You tell me. Sir, you know. 
And so he said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, are they before the throne of God? That's not our position. Our position is seated at the right hand of Christ uh, because that's where he's at. These are in front of the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sits on his throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither shall thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes." So this is a new group distinct from both the church and from Israel. It's interesting, if you look at all three of these groups, all three groups are found in the book of Revelation. You have the 144,000, you have the tribulation saints, and you have the church in Revelation 4 and 5. If you look, they all sing songs. All of them do. And all of their songs are different. The 144,000 sing the song of Moses, appropriate for Israelis, right? You have the tribulation saints singing a song here in Revelation 7 that we'll get to, I don't know, sometime in the next seven months. And then in Revelation 5 and 4, we saw the church singing a different song. We all sing different songs. All three groups have a different song they sing. All three groups have a unique privilege in Christ's kingdom. These serve in the temple night and day. The Bible says that we rule and reign with Christ. All three groups have unique jobs from the Lord, and all three groups display unique attitudes in the book of Revelation. For example, the church cries out in Revelation 5.10 that we are kings and priests who will reign on the earth with Jesus. But Revelation 7.15 says the tribulation believers are servants in his millennial temple. Different roles. The church is told by Jesus to pray for our enemies, to do good to those who, uh, who despitefully use us. We're always to seek mercy rather than justice. But the tribulation believers, they cry out for vengeance. Are we ever commanded in Scripture to pray for vengeance? No, in fact, we're told to do the opposite. Let vengeance run right by you. But these guys pray for vengeance. The church is told to watch and pray that we might be counted worthy to escape the great tribulation. We're told to occupy until he returns by going into all the world like sheep among wolves. That's a bad shepherd, by the way. No good shepherd ever says to little lammy, and he says, hey, buddy, it's going to be a great day. So listen, you see those wolves over there? I know they're snarling and chopping, but go tell them how wonderful it is over here. And yet, it shows us something about who we are as the church, that the Lord, don't hear this incorrectly, but you need to hear it. The Lord has no problem spending your life or my life if it means someone else could be saved. In, Revel- in Romans chapter 8, we talked about how we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. I, I want to be a conqueror. In that same chapter, it says we are counted as sheep led to the slaughter. We are slain all the day long. So the Lord sends us out like this. He does not do that with the tribulation saints. In fact, tribulation believers in Revelation 15, 13 are called blessed if they die during these seven years. They're told to hide. They're told to avoid all these things that are out there. We're sent into all the world. Jesus told the church that the gates of hell would not be victorious over his church. But Revelation 13, 7 tells us that the Antichrist will be victorious over the tribulation believers. So these are all distinct groups. And if we confuse the church with Israel, or if we confuse the church with the tribulation believers, we will, we will come up with a wrong understanding of the book of Revelation. You just will. So it's important to make sure we understand who's who. 
So these are the tribulation believers. The church is already with the Lord. These are tribulation believers who are being persecuted and killed violently for their faith in the Lord. Now, wonderfully here, it mentions that these white ropes were given to them and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season. I like this because the language here, it's not that John hears someone say, hey, everybody, rest. The language implies it's this idea that people are coming up to these hurting people who have now appeared in heaven and they're comforting them and they're telling them, rest, rest. You know, again, one of my, I have lots of favorite parts of the Bible, I guess. But like one of my favorite scenes in the Bible is when Stephen's being stoned and he sees Jesus who is normally doing what? He's normally seated at the right hand of the Father. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, ready to welcome him in. The last stone that hits him is the last pain he will ever feel. From that moment in time, it's going to be rest. The word here for rest, it means to find physical refreshment. Heaven is a place of being revitalized and reinvigorated. It is the best spa experience you could ever have. Far better than anything here. And so no matter how much this life may beat you down, whether it's physically or emotionally, if you're in pain today, physically or emotionally, and you think there's no escape, know this, it will not last forever. It will not last forever. You will be renewed. You will be revived. You will feel the warmth of the sun again. Well, it says they're going to rest and recuperate and find this physical refreshment, it says, until their fellow servants also and their brethren. So it's those who have common ground with them. It's not believers through all ages. Those who have this common ground with them, and the common ground is that they'll be killed like they were until that time is fulfilled. Sadly, many more believers will die during the Great Tribulation. The world will make the genocides of, 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 of history it will make those seem like minor offenses compared to these seven years of what will be done to these people. Now, while that is very sad news, there is an encouraging part of that sad news. Because while many will side with the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation will also see the greatest revival history has ever known. We'll get to that in seven, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. But here's why I bring it up now. Because it means if many can come to the Lord during that awful time, means they can still come to the Lord in our time, no matter how awful it may seem. So don't lose hope. Keep sharing your faith. The trumpet has not sounded yet. So our job of making disciples until he ret- and occupying until he returns isn't done yet either, right? Keep hoping. Keep sharing. Keep living for Jesus. He's still working. Well, we come to verse 12. We come to the sixth seal. And John says, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of care, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed like a scroll when it's rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places." John, when the sixth seal is opened, he says, and lo. And that is a unique Greek construct there. That means it demands you must pay attention. John, when he writes this, he says, you know, every scroll was open. It was like, wow, 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 wow. And then the sixth one opened, he's like, I can't take my eyes off this. It was just mind-blowing what he saw, what he was seeing happening. He says, this is something you've got to pay attention to. 
Why? Because there was a great earthquake as opposed to just a localized one somewhere. There was a massive global earthquake. And then he says also this other phenomenon happened. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. Now, normally when we talk about the sun becoming black like this, it describes a, a solar eclipse. However, we're going to see in a moment that the, blood's, the moon's going to become like blood, which describes a lunar eclipse. And you can't have a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse at the same time. So while this could be describing a lunar eclipse, there are numerous records in history of something called dark days, where during the daytime, the sun just goes unexpectedly dark. It's not a solar eclipse. The sun just goes unexpectedly dark. Scientists are still not exactly sure what may have caused those events, even though they have occurred 46 times in the last 900 years, and the most recent one was in 1971. What they have come up with, their best guess, though, is that the sun does experience something on a regular basis known as coronal holes. These are areas where the sun's outermost layer becomes cooler and hence darker. If you have the technology, the right microscope, you can see these blotches at all times. They're on the sun, but most of the time they're smaller, but they do get bigger. And, and when they get bigger, they blacken out small sections of the sun. Usually we can't see it here. Now, these things are constantly changing and reshaping. So when the large ones occur... One of the ways we know they're happening is because we can feel their effects on earth because of the solar winds they eject when they do this. And these solar winds, these larger ones, they cause geomagnetic storms which mess with our space-based technology, our satellites, and, and some high-frequency communication even here on the planet. Um, so is it possible that that's what's going on? I don't know. That's possible. But we know the next thing, the moon became as blood. Um, that is a lunar eclipse. So we, we call it a blood moon when it it happens like that, um, which is why I am led to believe that the sun's issues cannot be a solar eclipse in this instance. It also mentions here in verse 13 that the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she is shaken by a mighty wind. I think that's interesting language because while the word stars almost always refers to the gas bodies that are a star, like our sun, um, it is used a couple times in Scripture for other things that are out floating in space, like meteors or things like that. So <clears throat> what's interesting here is the word untimely figs and the idea of being shaken by a mighty wind. So untimely figs means late or unripe figs. It means that they've been on there too long, and, but they haven't fallen off yet. And so what's interesting is when you look at our satellites and our other space technology, they are Technically, they can be celestial bodies because they're out there, but they have the ability to stay in orbit for decades, yet not forever. They do have a termination time. There's a time when they're expected to lose their orbit and then be consumed as they re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. So it, is it possible that this refers to a massive solar wind flare that knocks out space technology before its decommission time? Sure, you know, but it's also possible this just refers to a massive meteor shower. Either way, what happens next in verse 14 makes it clear that this is a supernatural event instigated by the Lord. Because even if verses 12 and 13 can be described by natural events, verses, verse 14 is something no one's ever seen before. For it says in verse 14, and the heaven, the sky, departed. The word departed means to separate or split. I have seen some beautiful things in the sky. I have never seen it split. 
the sky will split, and it explains what it'd be like. It'd be like a scroll being rolled up and peeled back. It'll be like somebody puts a knife right through the middle of the sky and starts rolling back the sky so that you can see straight into the throne room of heaven. That is something the earth has never seen before. And it says that as a result of all these things, every mountain and island will be moved out of their places. The word moved means to change location. Earthquakes are caused, of course, by the shifting of tectonic plates. And large earthquakes, severe earthquakes, can seriously alter the region around those fault lines. I think I shared when I was going through uh, some sections in Daniel and Ezekiel about how in Australia, when one earthquake occurred out on the ocean, that it got rid of miles of beach because it just the fault line shrunk. Every, every, it went up and, and the beach line went down. And so just the water came cr- you know, crashing in and like miles of beach, are, they don't exist anymore. So the idea here of islands sinking and mountains being removed, uh, that's, that would happen in a global catastrophic earthquake. So this will be a global earthquake that changes the earth cr- earth's crust all around the planet. Now, in Joel chapter 2, verses 30 through 31, it references this day of the Lord event when this happens, and it also seems to indicate that there will be tons of volcanic activity. So... I mean, you've got volcanoes going off everywhere at the same time. You've got, you know, fault lines going crazy everywhere. As you can imagine, these type of catastrophes, in addition to being able to look into the throne room of heaven, the sky splitting in half, uh, that's going to cause a global panic. And so verse 15 through 17 says, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, every slave, and every free man, they hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? I think it's important to note that we're going to see in a moment, these individuals, they're not not crying out because... Um, they're not crying out because, you know, they're seeing God and, they're, oh, God's here and, you know, and wow, he's judging us now and we blew it. No, no, no. We're going to get to it in a minute where we explain that they're saying, who will stand up for us? Who will be our man to fight this God who wants to ruin our world? We'll get to that in a second. These are those in rebellion to God who are saying these words and they're persisting in the rebellion. I think it's important to understand that it's from the top, from great captains all the way down to a slave. Why is that important? Because it's not a person's socioeconomic status or lack thereof that makes them good or evil. It makes them righteous or unrighteous. It is my response to the Lord that makes me righteous or unrighteous. If I humble myself in the sight of the Lord, the Bible says he will lift me up. But if I harden my heart, the Bible says God resists the proud, right? So it is not any of my socioeconomic circumstances that determine whether I'm righteous or unrighteous. It is my response to the Lord that determines whether I'm righteous or unrighteous. And how do they respond? They respond in a way that we have seen from the very beginning when man started to sin. They hide. When Adam and Eve sinned, it says when they heard the voice of God walking in the cool of the garden, they what? They hid. They didn't want to repent. They wanted to cover up their sin. They hid. And so we see here, instead of repenting, this is rebellious mankind hiding. Rather than repenting, they'd rather die, fall on us, you know, the rocks and the mountains fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. Now, 
Isaiah describes this exact moment in the Great Tribulation in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 22, and it is fascinating because he focuses on the pride, the idolatry, and the rebellious hearts and stubborn hearts of mankind during this time. In Isaiah 2, verse 12, it says, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. And upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, every fence wall, everything that a man could worship, whether it's the works of his hands, whether it's the creation that's out there, or whether it's their own life, their own career, their own life they've built, whatever it is, it says it's all going to be brought low in this sixth seal. Verse 17, Isaiah 2, and the loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of man shall be made low and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. But what will they do? And and the idols he shall utterly crush. But what will they do? Verse 19, they shall go into the holes of the rocks and they shall go into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. Rather than repent and to cry out for mercy in the glory of his majesty, they will hide from it when he arises to shake terribly the earth. And in that day, a man shall cast his idols of silver. They're going to make new idols. They're going to not repent. They're not going to stop being stubborn. They're going to become more stubborn. In that day, a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats. They'll just find something new to worship. To go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he rises to shake terribly the earth. And so Isaiah has this message for mankind. Cease you from man. Stop trusting in man. Stop looking to yourself whose breath is in his nostrils. I mean, think about that for a minute. You know, you think, how much control do I have over stuff? If you really sit down and you think about it, very little. You know, every once in a while I lay in bed at night and I just think, I'm breathing right now, but I don't even have control over that. At any moment, these things could just, one little part of them could stop working correctly. And I can't just go, hey, uh, no, fix. My, my breath is, it's, it's, it's in my nose. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I mean, some of us have better noses than others. But this is not something we tend to highlight, you know? You know? Like most of us don't walk around going, look at my great nose. Look at how powerful it is. Look at how majestic it is. Look at what it can accomplish. It breathes in and out, air in, air out. No, we don't do anything like that because it's absurd. But it, he's, combi- he's bringing that image forth today to show us how absurd we are to trust in ourselves. We don't have the capability to do anything <laughs> on our own. Cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils. For wherein is he to be accounted of? It means, why should he be esteemed so high? Why should we really think that we can do this on our own? Especially when we mess it up so much. Isaiah urges those alive during this time to stop trusting in man, to stop trusting idols, to repent and trust the Lord. But instead, These rebels will hide and they will double down in their trust in their hero for they will cry out, who shall be able to stand? Now what that sounds like is no one can stand before the Lord, but that is not the way we're to understand this phrase. The phrase literally means which person will enable himself to make a stand for us? 
Which person will be our hero to fight this God who is trying to destroy us? And into this wrath from Jesus, into Jesus, his steps of laying claim to this world, of rescuing it, the Antichrist will stand tall and say, to me, everyone, rally to me. I will lead you to victory over this menace from heaven. And many will believe. I hear many times people say, how could a God of love send people to hell? God doesn't send anyone to hell. So the question is a false question to ask. It's an illogical question to ask. God doesn't send anyone to hell. People choose to go there. And Jesus, when he was explaining this concept in John chapter 3, he said, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. How much clearer can I get than that? But that the world through him might be saved. So what is condemnation? Verse 19, John 3. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. These men will rather die than submit to the Lord. I don't want to go to heaven. I don't want your ways. I don't want to follow you. I don't think you're great. I don't want your love. Just leave me alone. Let me do things my way. And they would rather cling to the Antichrist lie so they can keep living how they want than come to the light and change. For everyone that does evil hates the light. Neither comes to the light lest his deeds should be reproved, Jesus said. Let's not do that. (laughs) Right? Let's not do that. Let's not be rebellious. Let's be those who love the truth. Jesus went on to say his last words in this section of Scripture, John 3.21, but... He that does truth comes to the light that his deeds might be made manifest, revealed, that they are wrought in God. David put it this way, search me, O God, know my heart, see if there be any wicked way in me. If you love the truth, you come into the light, even though you know the light might expose things that need to change, things that aren't good, ugliness in my heart, bad attitudes, selfish attitudes, prideful attitudes. Listen, nobody likes it when somebody comes up to him and says, hey, you're wrong. I don't like it. It doesn't matter who it comes from. My bride, she is so precious to me, and I still don't, after 25 years, I still don't want to hear her say, well, you didn't handle that right. What do you mean I didn't handle that right? As if I never make a mistake. No one could ever come to me and tell me I could do better. Nobody likes that feeling. Nobody likes being pointed out. This is where you fall short. This is where you don't make it. This is where you're still messed up. This is where it's still ugly. Nobody wants to hear that. But when we come into the light, We can know that it's safe, that the one who is exposing is saying there's pride or selfishness or whatever it might be. He's saying, and I still love you. It's okay. Just bring it to me so I can do a change in your heart. I can take that ugliness and I can do something different. I can put love in there. I can put peace in there. I can put patience in there. I put kindness in there. I can put selflessness in there instead. I can live through you, the one who doesn't mess up. And so come to the light, he says. That's what those who love the truth do. Let's be that. And so I would say to you this morning, if you've never done that, if you've never repented of your sins, you've never come into the light of God's truth, today is the day of salvation. (laughs) Don't waste another day. Today is the day to walk into the light and go, Lord, I'm done pretending I'm a good person. I'm done. I'm done professing my own righteousness. 
I know I don't, I don't make it. I know I don't, I don't make the goal. Your, your, your bar is up here. Never do anything wrong. <laughs> I know I don't reach that bar. I know I fall short of that bar. But I believe you love me so much, you didn't want to judge me for that. You didn't want to punish me for that. Instead, you sent Jesus to come and die for me on the cross. And he paid the price for me so I could be not just forgiven, but I could be changed. And that's what I want you to do in my life. And so right now, I'm, I'm making that decision. I'm choosing to repent of my sins and to follow you, Jesus, to, you know, to be a, a, a disciple, your disciple. Will you forgive me and, and come and live in my life? And the Bible says he will do that, and you'll be born again, born from above, spiritually reborn. You'll belong to him. You'll be his son. You'll be his daughter forever and ever. Amen. That's why they call it good news. Because <laughs> I can look at me, and I go, yeah, I still blow it. And he goes, yeah, but I still love you. And I paid it in full already. So don't be stubborn. You know, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. The worship team's gonna come on up and we're gonna, we're gonna sing a song. We're gonna, we're gonna, you know, remember what he did for us on the cross. And as you do that, make it personal. You know, make it personal. You know, we, we pass these things out ahead of time, but, but if you're not a believer today, then, you know, the whole idea of the Lord's Supper is that we're proclaiming he did this for me. You know, that I am a sinner. We're, we're not maintaining this rebellious heart that we see in Revelation 6. When you do this, you're saying, that's not my thought process. I don't believe that. I I don't want to hide from from him. I want to come into the light. And I want him to show me what needs to get better. I want him to show me what needs to change because I know he loves me. And I know he'll never stop loving me. And I know this is a safe place to be. I know he's right. And when he points these things out, it's for my good. It's not just to critique me. And so if you've never made that decision, I'm not going to tell you don't do this. What I would tell you is as we sing and as we have that time alone with the Lord, that's a time to, to make it right, to, make, to pray that prayer and say, God, I repent of my sins and I put my trust in you. And then join us as we you know, all take, us, take the Lord's Supper together as we remember what he did for us on the cross. So Lord, we bring this time to you now to surrender ourselves to you, to remember what you've done for us, to remember the great love that brought you out of heaven, brought you into our world to become a man, and then to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, to slow down and reflect on that. Lord, that we might just return to you again and say thank you. Here's my life. So Lord, we dedicate this time to you. Be magnified and glorified as we remember you. In Jesus' name, amen.